This morning, we would like to talk about uh, a somewhat controversial subject on the front end, but you will find that God really has a word for you. You know, there's a difference between a message and a sermon. A sermon is something that you can download on the internet. A message is something that somebody brings to you. And I believe that God has a message for you. It's going to, it's like mail going to your address, <laughs> right? And every time, however, when we sit around our table at home and we, walk, and we read through our daily, daily uh, reading challenge, it is like there is a message just for me. It was like the Lord literally just spoke to me. And that is how we ought to, what we ought to experience every single time we open up the Word of God, because that is how He speaks. But today, I would like to speak with you regarding when love becomes a sin, when love becomes a sin. Uh, we look to scriptures, and it seems as though love is a primary attribute, a primary character trait of the Christian. If you think about it, uh, we love because God is love. Uh, we love because God first loved us. We love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love our neighbors as ourselves. We are, we are commanded to love one another. We are told that the world will know that we are children of God by the love that we have for each other. Uh, we even love our enemies. I mean, there is this major character trait, this attribute that ought to be true about every believer. It's called love. As a matter of fact, we're told that all of the law, the whole entire law, hangs upon this one issue, love, because love fulfills the law. We're also commanded not to owe no man anything, but to love each other, only owe each other love, nothing else. So this is just the tip of an iceberg, but throughout Scripture, we are called to love. We are commanded to love. Um, there is no other way for us to be identified by the world than the love that we have for one another. However, in today's text that we read, that Han read to us, we are explicitly, clearly commanded, do not love. And our culture is of that, that it's almost a sin to say, do not love. Everything is supposed to be love, and whatever they deem to be love is therefore affirmed. So it sounds like something that you're not allowed to say these days, do not love. But it's almost like when you hear those words, you go like, well, Jacques, you have to finish that sentence because just those state, that statement right there doesn't fit. Do not love the world or the things in this world. Now, in the first year, uh, Bible school, we had this conversation and we were working out all the different meanings and senses in which God uses the word love or world, in which He uses the word world. Uh, for instance, you can see how this stands directly opposed to the scriptures we know. For instance, we are told, for God so loved who? For God so loved the world. And then in this verse today, we are told, do not love the world. Because if you love the world, the love of the Father 
is not in you. Yet the Father loves the world. It seems like a complete contradiction at face value. But this is because the word world is used in different ways. You can, when the Bible uses the word world at times, it's referring to the earth, the planet. Then other times when the Bible uses the word world, it's used, it's used to refer to the population of the earth. Other times it's used in the sense of the Jewish world or the world of Gentiles. But it can also be used in the sense of a system, a worldly system. In John 3.16, God loved the world of believers, but He loved the world of believers so much that He sent His Son to die for them. But here in 1 John 2.15 and 17, you and I are warned against loving the world system. We are warned against loving this world's fallen culture. We are warned against loving this world's corrupted value system. You might say, well, Jacques, what is the value system? Well, it's people's values that they live by, that they're okay with, that they affirm, that they fight for. For instance, values that they live for, that they affirm, that they fight for, that are contrary to scriptures is the world system. For instance, inordinate affections. Inordinate affections. This is the lust of the flesh the Bible speaks of. For instance, covetousness. This is the lust of the eyes. Coveting your neighbor's stuff. I didn't say anything, but yet inside of me, there's a deep desire to have what they have. You see, it's not wrong to say, hey, by the way, I love your car. That's a really nice car you got, Alex. Let me see what all it does. Great. I, I would love to get myself a car like that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have something that is not prohibited by scriptures. But what becomes wrong is when I say, I want your car. Not that I want something that you have. I want yours. <clears throat> this is the world system. The lust of the eyes. The lust of the flesh, inordinate affections. And then we have the pride of life, which is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Somebody actually was having this argument on Facebook, and they were talking about how Christians do a lot of good. But so do unsaved people do a lot of righteous deeds, right? I mean, a lot of unsaved people do a lot of great things. How can you say that fallen man is only bad? That all that he does is sin? Well, let me give you an explanation. Let's say, for instance, there's a man who's completely given to alcohol. He's, he's a total alcoholic. Uh, Steve was talking about him the other day. Uh, a guy that <laughs> they found... Um, he was an employee somewhere, and they found him drunk in the stairwell. <laughs> and then they realized maybe it's not such a good idea to give him um, alcohol perks at the job. However, this man, without Christ, can choose to sober up. Yes or no? Yes, he can. Why? Because you've seen that happen a lot, 
haven't you? So this man can white-knuckle it, and he can actually come to a place, go through AA, and come to a place where he's completely free of the bondage that, he, that used to hold him. Now, was it a sin for him to have the addiction? Yes, that was a sin. Was it righteous for him to get freed from that without Christ? Was that righteous? Almost. It was self-righteous. So, he's addicted. He's the sin of addiction. He quits his addiction. Now he's committing the sin of self-righteousness. See? This really... <laughs> um, people, people really have this little tab, right? I'm a good person because I do this. I'm a good person because I do that. I'm a good person because I do that. And when you ask him, hey, why would God allow you into his heaven one day? He said, because I'm a good person. Well, really, self-righteousness, the Bible says, sends you straight to hell. So you might as well burn that little list. Stop helping the old lady across the street. It's a sin unless God is glorified in it. Are you following what I'm saying? If you're, a, if, if you, if you're living in open sin, quit it to glorify God. But if you're going to just quit it in your own power and your own strength and then say, look, I quit it. Well, that's a sin too. That's why Jesus, that's why the Bible tells us that even our greatest works are like what to Him? Dirty rags in His face. Now that's a really, really um, R-rated explanation of a dirty rag. But that's what it is like to God. God despises your faith in your self-righteous deeds and actions. He despises it. And that's called the pride of life. The pride of life. So we see in John 3.16, God loved the world of believers to the point where He sent His only Son to die for them. But then He says in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world. Don't love the world system. Don't love their fallen and corrupt culture. Don't love their, their broken down value system, including the lust of the flesh. In other words, inordinate affections. That's what you're seeing displayed today in our culture, inordinate affections. Don't fall into covetousness. It's the lust of the eyes or the pride of life, boasting, self-righteousness. I can do it, and I'm going to become great in this world, fame, and so forth. So the question we want to answer today is, under what circumstances would love be considered a sin? Seriously, love is a sin? How could love be a sin? Well, we just talked about how helping an old lady across the street could be a sin. Or how quitting, quitting, your, bad, quitting your addiction could be a sin, if it's self-righteous. But how can love be a sin? Under what circumstances does this, that we think and we deem so divine, become sinful? You see, love becomes sinful when it is directed at the wrong object when it is aimed at what is not allowed. It's a sin when I love that which God never gave me to love. When God gives me something to hate and I love it, for instance, darkness, that's a sin. Right? You see, love becomes sinful when it is directed at the wrong object. 
Love is holy when it's directed at God. Love is holy when a husband directs his love to his wife. Love is holy when a parent directs their love to their children. Love is holy when the body of Christ loves one another and the world knows that they are of God because of it. Love is holy when directed at scriptures. Love is evil when directed at an idol. Love is evil when directed at anti-God sentiments of this world, for instance, secularism. Love is evil when people love secularism. Love is evil when people love humanism. Love is evil when people love to lust. Love becomes evil when people love to have greed. They love dripping of this um, covetousness that they have. Love is evil when people love fame. That's an evil thing. You go, no, 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 it's not really, it's just, it's morally neutral. It destroys people. Let's, let's, put, let's line up every single famous Hollywood actor, star, rock star. Let's line them all up and let's see what that affinity and affection towards fame will do for a person. Love is evil when directed at fame pride, and so forth. 1 John 2.15, look at it again quick. Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's almost like light and darkness. If light is in this room, darkness is not. Somebody says, what is evil? Well, I'll explain it to you this way. Evil is, I call it the Doctrine of the donut. Did I ever tell you this? No, okay. The doctrine of the donut. If, he, if I say, man, I love, I love a donut, you think about this round tube of sugar, and in the middle of it, there's what? What's in the middle of a donut? A hole, right? I just asked you what's what something is, and you said it's a hole. What is that hole made up out of? Nothing. <laughs> it's something, but it's nothing. See that? It's something, but it's nothing. It's like light, darkness. If I put all the lights off in this room, I would say, what do you see? You will say, I see darkness. Really, darkness is nothing. Darkness is the absence of something. Like that donut hole, you say it's something, and I ask you, what is that thing? You say it's nothing. Well, it's, it's that much of no donut. <laughs> That's what that is. It's about that much of the absence of donut. And the same way, darkness is the absence of light. There is no light. That's why darkness exists. Actually, when they measure cold, they don't measure something they measure the absence of something. They measure the absence of heat. That's what cold is. The less heat, the colder it is. The less light, the darker it becomes. The less donut, the greater the hole, right? <laughs> the less God, the greater the evil. See that? When you go, man, I feel so, my life is so dark. I feel like, I, I feel like there's so much evil in my life. What is that? That is just... There's really very little of God in you. That's what that is. 
That's why I always say to people, they're like, can I come for counsel? I'm like, sure. <laughs> but my counsel is simple. Go to church. My counsel is simple. Read your Bible. That's why we do the, the, challenge, the reading challenge. My answer is simple. Join Bible school. Become educated in doctrine. My answer is simple. Get integrated with people who can hold you accountable. That's counsel. Why? Because counsel is, if you are in a dark place and you need to be free, if you are in a dark place and you need God, if you are without God and you need Him, guess what? You don't get somebody to lay hands on you or grab, have a little magic wand out of their back pocket and go, bing, you're healed. <laughs> That's what everybody wants. Everybody wants me to give, make, say a little prayer and boom, their life is healed. That's not how God heals somebody. How does God heal somebody? He heals them by when they serve Him. Actually, you know, somebody said, every time I read the Bible, it's almost like God is obsessed with Himself. It's like, you will have no other gods but me. Oh, all right. I am the first. Okay. And the last. All right. <laughs> the Alpha and the Omega. God is so all about Himself. Doesn't it seem that way? It's like, I will share my glory with no man. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And, it's, and I don't, you could read it like that. And you go like, man, God is, seems a little narcissistic, doesn't he? Everything is about him. Won't share his glory. He's the first and the last. Shall have no other gods before him. But really, the truth is, the reason he does that is because, not for his sake, for your sake. Because, now I understand everything, at the, ultimately everything is about the glory of God, right? But, God knows that the moment, the moment you start serving Him, you become free. The moment you put light, you allow the light into your life, darkness leaves you. The moment you come into the truth of God, all deception and lies are expelled. You become free because He's glorified in your, in your life. You walk out of bondage because you have no other God but Him. You destroy all, all idols. You see, God shows Himself to you and you change. How many of you, by a show of hands, can tell me all, in all honesty, every single time, an attribute of God becomes a revelation to you. In other words, God pulls the curtain back a little bit for you, and you go like, oh, I just saw something about God. I just saw an attribute, something that is a, true about God, and suddenly it changes you. How many of you, by a show of hands, can say that's true for you? Every time you recognize something about God, it touches and changes you. That's how God works. That's why it says, and when we see Him, we will be as He is. We become as free as God. We become as He is that day when we see Him. So no, God doesn't become exclusive 
or he doesn't demand exclusivity for his sake necessarily, but for yours. So he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, to explain this, let me give you a little bit of backdrop before we read the next verse. But in history, for those of you who love history, if we rewind back to the first century, in the year 64 AD, Nero was in charge. Nero the madman, he was slowly descending into madness to an nth degree. But on the night of July the 18th of that same year, 64 AD, a great fire was kindled, started in the city of Rome. And that fire burned for an entire week and burnt down a huge part of that massive, beautiful, developed city of Rome. And we have many ancient historians, I don't know if you know this, but we have multiple ancient historians whose writings we still have, who documented everything that happened within the first century. Historians from that time, for instance, Pliny the Elder, Suetonius, Cassius, these three ancient first century historians all wrote about this event and they all, um, they all documented that it was in fact um, Nero that started this fire and burnt down his own city. The only ancient historian who does not blame Nero himself for starting this fire was Tacitus. And when Tacitus was, uh, when you read him and you see what he says about the fire, when it comes to the question of who actually started the fire in 64 AD, burning down a huge part of Rome, he simply states, I am not sure. But the other ancient historians all were very convinced and sure that it was in fact Nero that did this. Now the city wasn't well prepared for a fire. It burned for a week. And of course, this became a plight on Nero. Why was your city not prepared, Nero? And in an effort to excuse himself from this accusation as to why the city wasn't prepared, he basically just do what, what you know, politicians do today. What they do is they just kind of shift the blame and they, they create another bigger problem. And so what he did was he accused the Christians as arsonists. He accused them for burning down the city. And of course, at that point in time, all Christians immediately got a big old uh, target on their back. And here they became overnight hated by the government and the public. Um, Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary gives a historical background regarding this time and this very specific um, event that happened after this or the persecution that took place because of this. And, I, and I'll read it to you quick. It says, quote, In 64 AD, there was the great fire at Rome, which Nero made the pretext for his persecution of the Christians. Every cruelty was, a, was heaped upon these Christians. Some of them were crucified. Some were arrayed in the skins of wild beasts and hunted to death by dogs. Some were wrapped in pitched robes, for instance, robes dripped in tar, and set on fire by night to eliminate the, the circus of the Vatican and, and gardens of Nero, while that monster mixed among the spectators." End quote. Now, 
Nero, at the time, had a nickname, or everybody basically called him what? The Beast. The Beast. And the reason he was called the Beast was because he loved um, dressing himself up in animal skin and acting, abs acting uh, in sexually very deviant ways. And uh, after this happened, the fire took place. He blamed the Christians. He got the whole world to persecute the Christians. They were persecuted in the worst possible way. It was at this time that the Apostle Paul was arrested by the magistrates. Um, in Titus 3, verse 12, you can read about it. And, they got, and he was arrested on double charges. The first one was for being a, uh, the Christian who actually started the fires in Rome. And the second charge against the Apostle Paul was that he was introducing an unlawful, illegal religion. Now, um, as Paul was arrested, of course, Christians being burnt everywhere, dressed in animal skin, made fun of as entertainment so wild dogs could chase them and hunt them down. At this point in time, Paul realizes that Nero, the beast, would not let him live. And uh, this is the backdrop to the very moment Paul actually writes to Timothy, his student, his disciple. Now, next time you read First and Second Timothy, you can have Paul's mindset, Paul's scenario, the Apostle Paul's, um, you know, motive for writing. It's a real somber um, situation that Paul is in. And here he writes this very interesting portion of Scripture to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 6 and 8, he says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. I understand why he's saying this. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. I want you to put a stake in the ground there. Who have longed for something. Who longed for something. There's a yearning in their heart towards something. He's appearing. Verse 9. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, cause he loved the world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Can you see how Paul says there's a crown awaiting for those who longed for his appearing? And then he goes, but Demas, he longed for the world. He loved the world. But there's a crown awaiting those of you who long for his appearing. So here what we have is we have two men, both of them ministers, Paul and Demas. Mentor, mentoree, teacher, student. One endures and he finishes the race looking forward to the crown of righteousness. The other one walked away and we never heard from him ever again. We do not know what ultimately happened to him. He falls out of history. So in this next portion of scriptures, we see which was written prior, now this is Paul, this is a couple of years before this moment, 
Paul actually mentions Demas uh, as a worker within his ministry. In Philemon 23, verse 24, it says, uh, Philemon 23, 24 says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Demas, part of my fellow workers. So we can see that they were close. But Demas loved the world. So it's very clear that Demas was not able to continue because of that very thing. He longed for the world. Now there's a difference between enjoying life and loving this world. To enjoy life is to live it to the full. To enjoy life is to grow, to explore, to understand, to know, to become wise, support others in the love of God, giving, sowing, preaching, teaching, raising others up in the Word. All of these things are extremely fulfilling, and when, life is when you have a fulfilled life, it's a very enjoyable thing, no matter how tired you may be. Can I have an amen for that one? Does anybody agree? Yeah. I mean, there have been times when you've worked your fingers to the bone, times when you've been so exhausted working your fingers to the bone, but it's all meaningful, it's all eternal, and it's so fulfilling. Then there are times when you had all the time in the world, you were bored to death out of your mind, and even though you get to be certain places, go certain places, be with certain people, you're like, you know, I really need to do something with my life. <laughs> you see, there is, there's a very fulfilled life, fulfilling life, and then there's a very empty life, and it has nothing to do with who you know, where you're at, what you have, what you earn. It's got nothing to do with that. Because you know one thing matters, another thing does not. One thing is eternal, another one is temporal. So to enjoy life is to use every moment and every opportunity in fulfilling the purpose of your life, which is ultimately, by the way, to glorify God. But the opposite of, an enjoyed, uh, of enjoying life is, in fact, loving this world. That's the opposite. So you might say, well, no, in, in logical terms, the opposite of enjoying something is to not enjoy it. The opposite in spiritual terms of enjoying life, the opposite of it is to love the world. To love this world is to be given to the lust of the flesh. In other words, given to inordinate affections. Loving what's forbidden. Lusting after what's not yours. It destroys your life. It takes your joy away. It is possible to lust and be very unhappy. It's possible to be very promiscuous and very unhappy. How many happy 50-year-old prostitutes have you ever seen in your life? Happiness evades. Joy runs from people who have inordinate affections. To love this world is to be given to the lusts of the eyes. In other words, no, I'm not participating, but man, I'm longing for it. No, I didn't, I didn't commit that sin, but man, I'd love to. And every one of us are guilty of that. 
to be consumed by covetousness and greed. Now, I didn't take your car, but man, I, I, I believe you should give me your car. When people become uh, where they believe stuff are owed them, that's not, that, that is in fact <laughs> when you are given to the lust of the eyes. That's a sin. Our culture is built on that sin. To love this world is to be filled with the pride of life. In other words, to keep on patting yourself on the back daily, thinking that I'm a good person. I've actually done great, you know. You know, I don't really commit great sins, but I do a lot of good stuff. To love this world is to be self-serving. To love this world is to only chase self-gratification and never self-sacrifice. As to live for things that God did not necessarily give you as a goal. To have the wrong goals. Like for instance, I'm living for the weekend. I'm living for vacations. I live for the next party. I live for the next pop concert. I live to go to the next um, Trailer Swift concert. I, I live for the American dream. <laughs> I live towards the easy life. I live towards things that are not eternal instead of eternal. This is what it means to love the world. So here, through the letter Paul wrote to Timothy, God is showing us the danger of falling in love with this world. The question is, will you endure to the end? Now think about this. All right. Here's the Apostle Paul. He starts all these churches. He's traveling the known world, Asia Minor, today's Turkey, modern-day Turkey. He's traveling the world, and he's got this companion, Demas. He's mentoring this guy. He's teaching him. I mean, imagine being so close to the Apostle Paul. And then at the end of the day, they do not endure. He did not endure. Imagine people doing that, just like Judas. So close to Jesus. Saw every miracle. Listened to all the teachings actually worked with Jesus, but didn't endure. The question is, can you endure? Will you endure? So the Apostle Paul said, I have run my race, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. But he also said in the next context, by the grace of God, I am what I am. In other words, it is impossible for you to finish your race without the grace of God. Most people believe the work that he has begun, I will complete. Isn't that what people think? People literally think that they are not just saved by God, but they are going to save themselves from losing what God saved them from, or the salvation God gave them. Let me say it again. They literally believe that God saved them, and then now they have to keep themselves saved. That's, again, self-righteousness wrapped in Something that seems very noble. But Paul was, Paul was saying, like the reason I am in fact who I am, somebody who has endured, is because by the grace of God. You see, I persevere because He preserves me. This is why Jesus said, pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And he says, lead us not into temptation. 
He wasn't saying, God, please don't tempt me because God cannot tempt you. He was, he was saying, pray, God, keep me from temptation. Keep me from the tempter that I will not do what Demas has done. So what we want to do is just want to look at three guardrails that will protect you. Three guardrails that will protect you from falling in love with the world. The first one is never allow your heart to drift towards the forbidden. Never allow your heart to drift toward the forbidden. The key word there is drift. You see, Demas didn't just wake up one day and decide to make a complete turnaround. Like, ah, I used to work with Paul, but you know what? I'm going to join Satan's team. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't just wake up one day and decide to change teams, right? No, he drifted into it. He drifted into deception over time. And like Demas, one can be a missionary. You can be on a missionary's trip with you can be on a missionary trip with the Apostle Paul and drift into deception because that's what Demas did. Just like Demas, one can have a mentor without being mentored. One can have a teacher without ever being taught. One can have a leader without ever being led. Demas was in love with the present world. That was his deception. But you cannot simply decide not to love this world. What you have to do is you have to, you have to decide to love the Lord. Think about it for a moment. If I say, all right, I'm not going to love this world, well, then what are you going to love? Every man loves something. Every man is given to something. There's not one person whose heart doesn't yearn for something. So, the point I'm trying to make is, I cannot make this, I cannot light this place up. Let me say it the other way around. I cannot remove darkness from this room. Except for one way, put the lights on. <laughs> I can put light in here and darkness is out. I can remove cold by doing what? Add heat, right? I can remove Ichabod where God is not by giving myself to God. Right? I can remove ignorance by putting scriptures in. I can remove foolishness by submitting to truth and wisdom. And so my point here is that you cannot say, okay, I won't love the world. But... Uh, I'm not going to love God as right now, right, right yet. I'll wait some other time. The only possible way to not love the world is to in fact love God. Just like the only possible way to remove darkness is to put light in here. You see, when I become increasingly more taken by God and the things of God, I'll become less and less attracted to the world and the things of the world. And the warning is specifically, do not love the world and the things of the world. And the only way to do that is to love God and the things of God. The more I love God, the less I will love the world. The more I love the world, the less I'm able to love God. Let's quickly look at James chapter 4, verse 4. It says, you unfaithful people, don't you know that Love for this evil world is hatred toward God. 
Whoever wants to be a friend of this world is an enemy of God. I want to read that same verse, James chapter 4, verse 4, in the Living Bible. It says, You are like an unfaithful wife who loves her husband's enemies. Don't you realize that making friends with God's enemies, the evil pleasures of this world, God's enemies, the evil pleasures of this world, makes you an enemy of God? Say it again, that if your arm is to enjoy the evil pleasures, that your aim is to enjoy the evil pleasure of the unsaved world, you cannot also be a friend of God. So with this first guardrail, we have to conclude that we have to be careful not to think drifting is a trivial thing. Drifting is not trivial. Drifting is strategic. Drifting is Satan's plan. Drifting is Satan's strategy. When you drift, when you veer, that is Satan's strategy. You go like, no, Satan wants me to, Satan wants me to face the other, other direction. I know. But the way he gets you to face the other direction, just like Demas did, is by causing you to drift. Because the further you drift, the colder you become. The further you drift, the less you love God and the more you love the world. Drifting is loving the world. Somebody goes like, well, uh, what does it mean to drift? It means to love one thing of the world. That is a degree of drifting. Satan wants you in bed with the world system. Remember James 4, 4 verse 4 in the Living Bible, it says, You are like an unfaithful wife who loves her husband's enemies. Satan wants you in bed with the world. He wants you in bed with the world's system, with the world's corrupt values. He wants you in bed with the world's insidious philosophies. He wants you guilty of spiritual adultery. That's what spiritual adultery is. Loving corrupt values, insidious philosophies. That is what? It means to have an idol. So we see, the first is to never allow your heart to drift toward the forbidden. Oh, I didn't actually sin. Yeah, but, I'm long, but you're longing for it. <laughs> That's drifting. Number two, crawl back onto the altar on a daily basis. Crawl back onto the altar on a daily basis. Somebody said the problem with a living sacrifice is that they love crawling off the altar. You and I, oh Lord, take my life. Two hours later. <laughs> Lord, you, I took my life back. I'm sorry. <laughs> daily crawl back on the altar. Actually in Romans chapter 12 verse 1, if we read it, it says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To give yourself to God is worship. Most people think worship is me raising my hand, singing a song. It's actually praising God and giving Him thanks. Worship is when I say, not my will, but yours be done. When I make myself available to the things of God, I am worshiping God. When I give my time to the things of God, I am worshiping God. That's the most practical way I can explain it. To make time, to sacrifice time, is worshiping God. To give yourself to the things of God in service, availability, is worshiping God. The other side to that coin is to say no to self is worshiping God. 
He says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and brothers, be by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual worship. In other words, to say, nope, not doing that. I just worship God. Are you following me? Nope, I'm not going to long for the world or for things of the world. I'm not going to have that longing grow inside of me. I've worshiped God. Give your bodies as a living sacrifice, which includes your minds and your desires. Give your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your worship. This is your worship. Two things that we have to realize, very unique to worship, to a burnt offering, which is what he's referring to here, is that first, the, the, the entire animal was consumed on the altar. The entire animal. When they brought a burnt offering, they didn't just bring the chicken wings. No, they brought the whole chicken, right? They didn't just bring, they just didn't, didn't just bring the ribs. They brought the whole animal. The whole animal was placed on the altar and burnt. It, signif it, it signified not only atonement for sin, but also dedication and consecration of the entire offering. Secondly, those fires uh, of the altar were never supposed to go out. They burnt all the, uh, day and night. Paul wrote this as an echo of what it says in Leviticus 6 verse 12. Watch this quick. Leviticus 6 verse 12 says, The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning. Now remember, in the Old Testament there were priests. Who are the priests in the New Testament? We are. You are a holy people, a royal priesthood. It says, The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. You see, the priests were to present burnt offerings twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. That's when we come to God and we say, God, here's my life. I give my life as a living sacrifice. In the morning, I give my life as a living sacrifice. In the evening. So this is the life, this is the life Paul is calling us to. First, the entirety of our lives need to become a sacrifice. Second, our lives need to be an offering unto God without interruption. Put yourself on the altar over and over and over again. Crawl back onto that altar on a daily basis. Thirdly and finally, the last guardrail to keep yourself from falling in love with the things of this, of, to fall in love with this world and the things of this world is to surrender to the sovereignty of God on a daily basis. Here's why I'm saying that. This will really help you. So many people are pained by the sins, the, the sinful actions of other people against them. It's like, you know what? I'm so scarred because of all the things that people have done to me. People have abandoned me. They said they loved me. Their actions proved that they didn't. They said they were committed to me, but they were committed to themselves. People made promises, and they broke those promises. So many people walk around daily thinking about how others are harming them, hurting to them, deceiving them, lying to them. Your whole life is consumed with what others are doing and have done to you. If you cannot see God to be the ultimate 
sovereign one, who's ultimately sovereign, then you're tempted to become bitter. You get bitter towards friends, towards family. You get bitter towards the church. You get bitter towards, towards the state. You get bitter towards the government. You get bitter towards different players in the world. You get just bitter. But you will start drifting from God if that is you. You have to take, you have to undo that. You have to take that cancer out. There's only one way to do it. You see, God is sovereignly in control over absolutely everything, including the sinful actions of other people. You've got to know He's not. Well, Joseph is a, is a classic example, and I'll close with this. You know, Jesus had all those people crucify Him. That was an evil act. That was the most evil act in the history of humanity. Because he is the most righteous human who ever lived. Crucified. They hated him. They spat on him. They stabbed him. They punched him in the face. They ripped his beard out. They crucified him. That's an evil act. Just as God planned it to be. These men played right into God's hands. In the same way, Joseph, everybody knows his story. There his brothers were so jealous of him. They grabbed him. They were going to first kill him, but then they killed an animal instead. There's atonement for you. Penal substitutionary atonement. But they killed an animal. They put his, his, they put his clothes in the blood and showed their father. An animal killed him. But then they threw him in a pit. And then a caravan came by and they sold him to, these, to this caravan as a slave. First he was hated by those who were supposed to protect and love him. And then he was sold for silver, just like Jesus was sold. Judas sold Jesus out for silver. And then eventually he lands up Celebrated to a certain degree, but then only to be lied about because of his faithfulness. He was celebrated, but then he was lied about. Potiphar's wife said he tried to rape her. Of course, all these lies were believed. He was thrown in prison. And then you have the butler and the baker, and then the one forgets about him. <laughs> Left in prison. I mean, if you want to give a string of people who have harmed him, lied about him, deceived him, hated on him, destroyed his life. And then God goes, he picks him up and he causes him to become the second greatest in all of the nation. Just like Jesus was raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of the Father. But here's Joseph God elevates him to the most powerful man in the kingdom. And then his brothers, not knowing that that was the brother that they sold, they come asking for food because they had fallen on hard times. And when they realized it was him, to make a long story short, they fell on their faces and they were sure that their brother was now going to murder them because of what they did to him. 
But look at what he says. His response to them in Genesis 50 verse 20 is this. As for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me. Yes, you're evil to the core. You meant to hurt me. You meant to destroy me. You, d- you chose to sell me out. You meant evil against me. All of this was your doing. But God meant all of this for good. You meant one thing with this. God meant another thing with the same thing. <laughs> God meant something else with the same, same event. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Surrender to the sovereignty of God on a daily basis. Your hang-ups, your weaknesses, your hurts, your pains, the injustices, give it all to God. He's sovereign. Because what men may have meant for evil, what family members may have meant for evil in your life, trust me, God is good. And he means that he means good with the same event. Let God be sovereign in every part of your life. You go like, well, that doesn't even make sense. Well, it does because this is not all that life cracks up to be, right? This is simply, um, this is simply a very short period of time. The Bible says your life is like a passing shadow. And you will see in all of eternity, you will rejoice for trusting God for who He is. He's sovereign. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much that we can walk free of all anger, all bitterness, that we can walk free of resentment, that we can walk free of disappointment. Even though disappointments come, we don't have to live with that disappointment because God... You are sovereign. Lord, every day we crawl back onto the altar. We give ourselves to you on a daily basis because the world is calling us. The world is luring us. The world is tempting us. The world is deceiving us. But every day we will get back onto that altar. And Lord, finally, we will never allow our hearts to drift towards the forbidden Help us, Father, through your word and through the conscience you've given us that we will be self-correctors, that we will not allow our hearts to drift away from you to the world. In Jesus' name.